guys, we're in the middle of a pandemic and these are trying times. It's hard on our mental health, our mental state. And this is why I love our sponsor today, BetterHelp. They're the largest online counseling platform worldwide. They change the way people get help with facing life's challenges by providing convenient, discreet, affordable access to licensed therapists. BetterHelp makes professional counseling available anytime, anywhere, through a computer, tablet, or smartphone. It's brilliant. Sign up today. Go to betterhelp.com backslash solving healthcare and get 10% off sign-up fees. Quarkass Nation. Welcome back. Thank you, everybody who's been listening to the show, advocating for the show. Recently, we found out we're the number two medical podcast in the country. That's what we're doing. We're changing that boogie. Yo, it's awesome. Thank you, everybody, for the support. It means a ton. Um, this is going to be February 27th when this is re-released. It's our episode on systemic racism with Chika Oriwa. And I thought this is the best way to end Black History Month because I'll tell you what this woman did for me was motivate me to do more, to elevate my game, start that mentorship program, elevate my voice in terms of anti-black racism and systemic racism and healthcare. And she's a young woman and she is going to be a star. And she was so kind to grace us on our show. And for those that don't know, you'll hear it uh, in soon enough, but uh, Chica was the valedictorian for the Toronto Medical School. She was the only black student amongst a class of 256. And her advocacy has been so strong in terms of getting better representation in medical schools for a BIPOC community, um, raising issues of systemic racism, talking about her story and just giving us all that courage to speak up and, and, and do our part to advocate for better treatment and better representation. So I am, ultra proud of her. I, I, you know, I can't speak enough about her. She's recently got appointed on the board of governor for Indigo. You know what I'm saying? I don't even know what Indigo totally is, but that's real. You know what I'm saying? I think I've been in there once or twice. Um, but yeah, no, this is a, an episode that meant a world to me because it, it changed my life. And so without further ado, Dr. Chica Oriva. Welcome to Solving Healthcare. I'm Quedro Caramantang. I'm an ICU and palliative care physician here in Ottawa and the founder of Resource Optimization Network. We are on a mission to transform healthcare in Canada. I'm going to talk with physicians, nurses, administrators, patients, and their families because inefficiencies, overwork, and overcrowding affects us all. I believe it's time for a better healthcare system that's more cost-effective, dignified, and just for everyone involved. Quadcast Nation, I am so stoked for this episode. We got the one and only Dr. Shika Oriwa, the current valedictorian for U of T class, only black student in her class. I am so proud to have you on the show. Welcome to the Quadcast. Thank you so much for having me. Absolutely. I, I don't even know where to begin. I got to tell you, when we saw, like even my family saw your story in the news. We were virtually high-fiving from across the country. I, I can't even imagine how proud your parents must be. But why don't we just hear your story, like where you grew up, what got, led you to medicine? Why don't we start there? Sure. So I was born in Ottawa, and I was raised in Brampton, Ontario. And um, I'm the daughter of two Nigerian immigrants. So my parents came to Canada from Nigeria in the 1980s. And I'm one of four children. And yeah, I had a pretty, I would say, typical childhood in Brampton. And my love for medicine kind of started from a very young age. My mom said that as soon as I learned how to talk pretty much is when I started to say that I wanted to be a doctor. And I think that was born out of my love for babies at the time. I actually really <laughs> loved being around children. And my uncle, who is a physician in another country, he is a neonatologist. And so when I learned that he spent all of his time taking care of babies, I was like, okay, well, whatever it is that you're doing, I want to do that too. 
of course, at that time, not necessarily knowing the amount of work and stress that goes into being a doctor, but just just knowing that I wanted to take care of kids. And naturally, you know, this dream evolved and was complemented by my love for science, my love for public speaking and advocacy. And so I would say that, you know, ultimately I was very fortunate that this early, you know, inception and con- conception of my, my love for medicine just ended up aligning with the natural talents that I had, which ultimately led me to pursuing a career as a physician. Lovely, lovely, Shiga. And, and what was your path to medicine? Like, was it, uh, like, did you have, like, what did you do in undergrad? Did you take any time between degrees? What was your, your path to achieving your dream? Um, so after high school, um, I went to my undergrad at McMaster University. And I actually originally started off in the life sciences program, and then I transferred into the Bachelor of Health Sciences Honors Program, and I completed my degree in health sciences there. And then afterwards, I took a gap year between my undergrad and medical school, and I worked as a professional spoken word artist um, because I'd been a spoken word artist for a number of years, done public speaking for a number of years, extending back to my adolescence. And so, yeah, I took that time between medical school and my undergrad to fully throw myself into my professional artistic career because, you know, for me, it was important to be able to kind of fully explore that aspect of my life because I don't think I would ever have that opportunity again to kind of Mm. just be a full-time artist unless I decide to leave medicine and then pursue poetry (laughs) completely. But, um, you know, having that experience was really important for me. And then I came to the University of Toronto to complete my medical school. And I did that concurrently with my Look at you throwing down. Man, you're becoming more interesting by the minute. Thank you. Wow. I I mean, I know we're going to talk about, you know, racism in medicine, but I got to mention like that gap year and you doing embracing yourself and your artistic talent, I promise you, this will add to your arsenal as a, an amazing doc. Like the, how much more you could relate to people, being in touch with your creative side. This is what promotes innovation as far as I'm concerned, being in tune with, with that side. And so I just want to commend you for, I don't know how proactive you were in thinking about all this stuff, but I'll tell you, as a seasoned doc, I could see definitely the benefits in terms of how you're going to be able to provide better care to your patients and innovate within medicine. Thank you. Thank you so much. Oh, bravo, bravo. I mean, we might as well get into it. So you, I mean, you've, you're, did four years of medical school, you, within that time period, at least two years within, you know, seeing patients and what's been your experience in terms of racism in general within medicine? So the experiences that I've had with racism within medicine has definitely taken on various forms and permutations. You know, my first day of medical school being asked whether I had gotten special treatment to get into medical school because I was the only Black student and they were wondering if there was like a special path or if there was like an adjusted criteria or something. Uh, So from a very early stage in my medical career, recognizing that people may have preconceived notions as to the merit that I have to being in medicine. And then, you know, actually, it it really even extends before I got into medical school, even on the pursuit of medical school, um, you know, where I was the only Black student in my health sciences program in, in my year. And then, you know, I had an experience where I had a border patrol officer accuse me of lying when I told him that I wanted to pursue medicine. And I was the only Black individual in the car. And we said, we all wanted to be doctors. And he said, well, you know, even you. And then there was this back and forth exchange of him denying that I actually was on the path of pursuing medicine. So, you know, going from that and then to my first day of medical school, and then, you know, several iterations of encountering that from, uh, you know, preceptors, um, my superiors, from peers, from patients. And then ultimately, you know, when I got more and more involved with my advocacy and when I took more of a public presence with my advocacy, experiencing 
an onslaught of racism online from individuals who saw the work that I was doing and either didn't agree with it or, you know, just were against everything that I, I stand for. And so it was, um, it's definitely been a very interesting process of encountering the insidious forms of racism and the, you know, explicit and, over, and overt forms of raci- racism that I've encountered in the last four years and before that. You know, I, I it just breaks my heart because, you know, I, I grew up in, in Alberta where I feel like, you know, there's less brothers and sisters out there. And, um, you know, I used to say, and I'm, you know, older. So I would always say like, you know, those are the excuse, some of the excuses why I, I experienced exactly some of the stuff that you have. But to think that this has happened so recently, like you just finished, this is 2020, you started med school in 2016, mm-hmm. you know, like, and I mean, not to sound ignorant, but you know, to that level, you would think a lot of this has been, would be subdued and that, that, that level of ignorance would not be as present, but, and it just goes to show that, you know, a lot of people they they've asked lately is like, oh, do you still experience it? And, you know, of course my answer is always, always, you know, like, um, of course, yeah. but man, that is, that just breaks my heart hearing that you've had to experience such things so recently and like, just, you know, I know how it feels. I just want to hear it from you, though. Like, how does it feel? What, how does it affect you when you have these experiences? You know, I would say that it's been, an, it's been an interesting arc of emotions. Because when I first started medical school, you know, coming out of my undergrad where I was the only Black student, I was, you know, there was this period of, of being disillusioned, of you know, recognizing that I wasn't going to be shifting the narrative that I had had for the last four years that I didn't necessarily want. And I think that aspect of expecting it to be different and then it being the same, if not worse, was very difficult for me to process at the beginning of medical school. There were definitely issues of like imposter syndrome, which, you know, the average medical student faces, but certainly what that is going to be compounded by being the and of one of any minority group, you're going to feel that to an extreme. And then obviously having that explicitly questioned, having your place in medicine ex- explicitly questioned makes it all the more difficult. And then, you know, going through medical school and trying to find the different supports and trying to find, you know, answers to certain questions w- with regards to, you know, the lack of diversity in the medical curriculum and having, you know, either not getting any answers or being, you know, dismissed in certain ways. And that was certainly um, all the more frustrating. And so I think there was an element of like frustration and, and also feeling othered and feeling isolated. And, and, you know, knowing that when I encountered discrimination, that of course, I, I would be able to find allies in certain ways, but it's hard. It's a different kind of support that you get from when you have solidarity with someone who has lived experience. And so knowing that that solidarity wasn't necessarily built into the environment that I was in was, was incredibly difficult because then you are kind of playing the constant mental exercise of, do I engage? Yes or no. Do I try and educate? Yes or no. Like what, where is my current bandwidth with regards to the energy that I have to like educate this person or call out a a microaggression? And it's just kind of this constant background, like basal exhaustion of, mm. of constantly being aware of your race at, at all times, at least in my case, I certainly was. And that, that can be very taxing on someone. And then, you know, when I was asked by the faculty to help with the implementation of the Black Student Application Program and come forth with my story, you know, there are certainly elements of fear because you know, being told that as a Black person who's speaking up about issues of race and, and, and isolation, then that could call into question and jeopardize your future opportunities, especially as a medical student, being told that that would jeopardize my chances at certain residency programs. And kind of living in that constant fear for the last four years that I wasn't going to match to a school because I'd be seen as a troublemaker. And so once again, constantly having to do that risk assessment of is it worth continuing my advocacy? What am I going to do? You know, how much am I willing to kind of, you know, jeopardize in the name of justice in a certain way? And then of course, you know, it's like the, the arc of emotions continues when I 
choose to do that advocacy and then getting the, the backlash online and facing the torrent of racism and hatred and bigotry that I faced online. And then, you know, not necessarily living in fear, but certainly facing that and having to encounter these attacks on my character and having to, you know, wanting to defend, wanting to defend myself, but not necessarily being able to face a bunch of bullies online. Like I can't really take that on head on otherwise than other than just, you know, living in my truth and continuing to do the work that I felt was necessary. But certainly it was, it was a process of dealing with a lot of different emotions and, you know, being constantly invalidated when speaking up about my lived experiences, both from peers and from other physicians and then from the public as well. And so it was a really exhausting and frustrating and at times heartbreaking and disheartening process. But I, it, was, it was definitely also empowering, being able to live in my truth and knowing my why behind what I was doing was what enabled me to do the work that I felt I was called to do. Yeah. I mean, guys, this is why you're listening to a hero, man. Like I'm telling you, what Chica's describing, you know, all that, the energy, the band, like the way you put it too, the bandwidth to, to, to not only deal with the stresses of medicine, not only to, to you know, to try and have a, an enjoyable experience in med school and to connect with others, but to have that constant pressure, that voice inside, inside and outside telling you like what you're doing might be wrong or like all those obstacles. And despite that, stepping up, you know what I mean? Saying like, you know what? My why is strong enough. I got to look at myself in the mirror. I'm going to have people behind me and become a leader and be that voice for those people that can't speak for themselves. That's legend. Like, I'm just, Thank you. like, I'm trying not to get a little emotional just because I, I know what you've gone through. And I'm so proud of your courage because you. I, I know, I, I don't know in my, my state or your stage of your career, if I would have been able to do what you're describing, you know, and you think about all those times, those, that those times where you get those microaggressions and you're exhausted and it's like enough is enough, but you're like, am I going to address that now? I'm like, I don't have that energy. I'm, I don't, I don't, want to deal with that now. But, you know, and then you had that other added pressure of the online bullshit, like people just attacking, attacking, attacking. And for what? Because of the color of your skin, because of the obstacles you've had to go through just to get a seat at the table. It's, and it's, it's crazy. And I'm just, I'm really glad that, you know, these issues are coming more to the forefront because, you know, it's been a lot of years you know, where, where this has been going on. But um, I, I just, I mean, I know that's not a real question, but just, I just can't emphasize on, enough how, how much of a, a hero and how much courage that takes to do what you're doing. Thank you. So maybe walk us through some of that advocacy, like how, because mm-hmm. I mean, the reason I think it's important to go through is because there's going to be other suppressed people that other, whether it's other races, other marginalized groups that are going to hear this and maybe going to want to do their part, going to want to try and step up for their, their people. So walk us through like what that process was like and, and, um, and if there was a framework to it, if, essentially if there was a framework to it. Right. So I would say that, you know, coming into my advocacy, it certainly was a blend, I would say, of my passions, but also my skill set. So as I mentioned before medical school, I was a spoken word artist and I used spoken word as a tool of social discourse of talking about sociopolitical issues that I felt were relevant, especially pertaining to the Black community and police brutality. And so naturally, whenever I feel like there is an injustice that is happening and I feel the need to speak on it. I think that my most organic and natural way of doing so has certainly been through spoken word and through poetry. And so one of the ways that I used that for my advocacy is that I released a poem called Woman Black in 2017. And that was just me, you know, kind of after a year, because I was in my second year, I was at the start of my second year of medical school. And after being in medical school for a year and recognizing that there were a lot of inequities that I was facing, I knew I had to speak up about it. And so I wrote and I performed and recorded and filmed and and released this spoken word poem called Woman Black. And it basically was 
talking about my experiences in medicine, calling into question the lack of diversity in the medical curriculum, calling into question, you know, the fact that I had never been trained or prepared to on how to respond to encountering discrimination and racism, but knowing that I was going to have to face that in clerkship and when asking for support there, you know, not really having any answers or being provided with any answers. And so that was one of the ways that I used my advocacy. But then also in tandem with that, I, as I mentioned before, I was asked to be the public ambassador for the Black Student Application Program. And so doing that allowed me to actually have my first encounter with the media and share my story through the newspaper and through uh, TV interviews. And that kind of was the springboard for so much more further public speaking and, and engagement opportunities. And so after that, I started this journey where I was doing keynotes and seminars and panelist discussions. Up, and I did upwards over the course of the last four years, over like three dozen keynotes and seminars and panelist discussions, where I was detailing my experiences of racism in medicine and leading up to medicine. And then I was talking about, you know, educating the public on the Black Student Application Program and why it was so important. And then, you know, talking about ways to be an, an ally and how to respond to discrimination in medicine and how it is that we can really strive for systems level change. And so my advocacy certainly took the form of public speaking and poetry, but then also organizing. So I was, I held a number of leadership positions amongst different organizations. So the Black Medical Students Association at U of T, because under me, there were uh, quite a few more Black medical students that came in the year after mine. And so being the, the, the co-president of that organization, starting the Black Interprofessional Students Association at U of T, and then um, starting Black Girl Brunch Toronto in 2019, and working with the ministry, the prior ministry of Children and Youth Services, because now that I think it's kind of taken a different shape under the new uh, government. But at that time in 2017 to 2018, sitting as as an external implementation, sitting on the external implementation steering committee and working with Minister Michael Koto, going and doing community engagement sessions for the Ontario Black Youth Action Plan, specifically looking at how it is that, that we can fund and support initiatives within the Black community geared towards Black youth. So really getting actively involved in leadership roles that are centered around organizing and mobilizing within the Black community, both academically within, within institutions, but then also embedded within the community and, and really trying to do active work there. And then also like kind of the, the streamline throughout the last four years has been the, the mentorship opportunities that I've taken on, you know, mentoring numerous Black uh, pre, pre-medical students, whether that's one-on-one mentoring and spending, you know, hours a day literal hours out of my day counseling and coaching pre-medical students. And I still do that to this day. I probably have like two talks or or two phone calls a week that are like an an hour to two hours long where I'm just giving advice and and mentoring and coaching. And, you know, this is international too. So I'm talking to Black medical students in the States. I'm talking to Black medical students in other continents and, and really just trying to give back to the community in that sense. And then also dedicating my, uh, my, my master's academic work to the advancement of the Black community within medicine. So looking at the impacts of mentorship in the Black community and then doing some international quality improvement work in Trinidad and Tobago in this past year. So that's the various ways that my advocacy has kind of taken shape. <laughs> Goddamn. I mean, a single person changing the boogie like, like you, Shika, like this is unbelievable unbelievable like where do you find the time uh you know i would say that i'm probably the the one one of the more meticulous people when it comes to scheduling my days out like i every minute of my day is is accounted for in some way and i feel like i've always kind of been that super type a super organized person and i think that it just kind of came out of necessity especially when I needed to do more of my advocacy work. I kind of became almost like hypervigilant with regards to my scheduling and trying to optimize and maximize all the hours out of my day. 
yeah. um, well, in time for some self-care, but <laughs> yeah. I was just going to say two things. One, like, I don't want to like big brother, be too big brother, but like just your life is going to be busier in residency. Just make sure to like really emphasize that self-care and not over, over task yourself. But right. the other thing I want to say is this is one thing that I, I, I will say repeatedly. The one thing that is good about having to go through some of these obstacles is when you come out the other side, you'll be a warrior. You'll be like another Sheikah. Okay. Like this is, this is what happens. You will say, you know what? I've overcome all this. I'm going to mentor. I'm going to be a role model. I'm going to not take no for an answer. I'm going to make those public appearances. I'm going to talk to government officials. I'm going to reach out to my community and say, this is how we do this. This is how we do this. So all the kids out there right now that are saying to themselves, hey, man, like this sounds like a lot to go through. It is a lot to go through. But when you come out the other side, you'll be legend. Okay, you'll you will be strong. You will be impenetrable. So I mean, I'm, I know I'm preaching to the choir here, but, you know, like, I, I think, you know, this is an important message that for me, you know, and I'm new to this attention. I, I mean, you and I didn't really talk too much before, but mm-hmm. I've been doing a little bit more media appearances for anti-Black racism issues in healthcare. And uh, the mm-hmm. one thing that I really, really, really want to emphasize is we need people at the table. We need the kids at the table. We need them to be inspired and want to get there and realize yeah. they can get there. We could do it. They could do it. You know what I'm saying? Absolutely. Yeah. Representation is so important. Honestly, I see it kind of as like the building block, like one one of the most important building blocks because it it helps to make a dream seem tangible. It Mm. makes it feel real. You know, if you grow up and you never see black doctors, like I rarely ever saw a black doctor. I mean, my, my uncle was a physician, but he was a physician in, in another state, in, in another country. And, you know, growing up in Brampton, Ontario, I certainly did not see any black doctors. And mm-hmm. so, you know, when you, when you have a dream for yourself and you don't see yourself reflected in that field, you start to question things, even as a child, even subconsciously. You start to, you, you know, you start to call into question, is this where I am meant to be? You know, and we can we can talk about this further at another point if it comes up. But certainly, I think that the systems that are in place that lead to the downstream effect of not seeing a lot of black individuals in medicine in medical school, a lot of that has to do with representation, mentorship, social capital. But it also has to do with the systemic discrimination that's embedded mm. within the fiber of our society, even within educational systems, and how that dissuades, you know, young black children from even seeing themselves pursuing something like medicine from Mm -hmm. a very young age, from a very young age. And so that's something that I'm really passionate about is, you know, allowing the black youth to see that not only are we in these circles, you know, we're in medicine, we're in law, we're in we're in politics, we're in all of these places, but you know, you have it with within you to pursue this. And it's it's up to us who are in these positions who are sitting at these tables to create these networks of mentorship to build that social capital so that these children can see us and that we can provide them the pathway to getting to where we are and beyond where we are. So that's just a, a really um, important passion that I have. I, I love it because I think, you know, I was going to ask this, but we're, I guess we're kind of at, you're, you've answered it to a certain level is like, what are some of these solutions to get to inspire the youth and to to deal with these systemic racism issues, and I I personally, you know, I, I approach things quite simply, and I I say, you know, get a seat at the table. Let's see more representation of people like us in positions of authority or power where decisions are being made. Like when I still, I'm in a fairly multicultural city, not as much as yours probably, but when I walk in the hospital and I see or a black physician, I'm, I almost do a double take, double, double take. I'm like, Hey, what's up, yo? Like, you know what I mean? Like, it's just like, it's like, wow. And that's crazy. It really is crazy. And, you know, without get, I mean, I've said my story on the show a bunch of times, but you know, you tell people at a young age that you want to be a med- in medicine, you know, like there's that undertone, there's that 
that that level throughout. I mean, you said it throughout your journey, throughout my journey too, like that level of doubt and these barriers to trying to achieve big things. And, and, um, but yeah, I mean, maybe, was there any other highlights in terms of, you know, solutions, you know, like we talked about representation. I mean, any other things that come to mind? Certainly. So, you know, representation is just a piece of the puzzle. I think it's, for us to see real, enduring, sustainable change, we need to have a multimodal, multi-pronged approach, right? Representation is so important, but we also need to ensure that the individuals who have the seat at the table are actually, you know, doing their best to leverage the privilege that they have to make it better for our communities, right? Like I could be in medicine and I could kind of keep my head down and keep it moving, right? And people will still see me in medicine. But if I'm, I feel like, you know, if I'm not actively doing something to make it better for my community, then that only goes so far. And I think that it, it really necessitates an extension of yourself outside of your own personal needs. And, you know, the, the onus does lie on us to shift the current culture and to shift the dynamic. And, you know, I should also re- reword that and say that the structures that are in place are not in place because of the Black community not doing enough. They are in place because of, you know, oppressive forces and what, whatever may have you. And the real onus, the real onus to, to shift things does lie on dismantling these structures of oppression, which oftentimes are structures of white supremacy that need to be, you know, dismantled. And that, that responsibility, it does seem like it weighs heavily on the Black community, but it really is an, an overarching structure that the current forces at hand need to also deal with. Mm-hmm. So I don't want to make it, or I, I don't want it to come off as though I'm saying that it's on Black doctors, it's on Black politicians, it's, it's up to us to shift things. But I do think it is important for us who hold these positions of power to give back to the community and to also ensure that we're holding, you know, other forces accountable to ensure that this long standing long enduring um, systemic change can happen. Mm. And I think to add to that, it's so important to recognize that we, we need to look at all the different layers within our society that contribute to anti-Black racism that I think ultimately leads to the outcome of where we don't see a lot of Black individuals in these positions of professional power and, and, and privilege, being doctors, being lawyers, what, whatever may have you. And I think that, you know, extending back into the educational system where we see that young Black children and students are more likely to uh, face harsher reprimand, more likely to be labeled as having a behavioral issue, more likely to be placed in educational streams that are below their capability. So imagine being an 11 and 12-year-old child and being told that, you know, when you, as, as we're preparing you to go off into high school in the next couple of years, we think you would be more suited for an applied route, which basically takes them out of the running for even pursuing university. Um, which ultimately takes them out of the running for for becoming a physician or for becoming anything that requires professional or graduate school. Mm. And so really going back and challenging these structures that are, you know, disproportionately negatively affecting Black children, these are some of the things that that need to happen if we really want to target the root causes of why we're seeing this outcome in medicine, and not just medicine, but law and other professional settings. So if we're thinking of solutions, that's certainly one of the ways that, that we can go about it. And then also mentorship. So this, this is, um, ties back to my point where I said that for those of us who are Black, who are in positions of power, really extending ourselves back into, into the community. So once again, I think it's so important that, men, that, that, that we become mentors, that we start to build that social capital, that we start to build that knowledge base that we see is inherited in other communities right? Like I remember coming into medical school or even going into my undergrad and seeing that there were so many people that had research projects and they were connected to doctors for years before they even started their undergrad. And you can imagine the advantage that that, that is provided to them. And that's because it's, in, it's embedded within their social structures, within their community. And so I think it's incumbent upon us as Black physicians and you know, Black professionals to start to build up that network of mentorship and, and providing that b- back to our community so that kids who are interested in medicine from 12, 13, 14 years old know, 
okay, this is what you need to do. This is the pathway, right? And not having it spelled out to them in third and fourth year of university, like I was trying to figure out, like, how do I even go about, like, what is it that I need to do to even get into medical school? You know, I'm already asking these questions too late because I didn't know who to ask or even what to ask earlier, Mm. right? So it's, there's so many things that need to happen. And then lastly, I guess from, from an institutional level, definitely, you know, medical schools acknowledging the, the lack of diversity that they have. So certainly the University of Toronto has done an excellent job of doing that and instituting the Black Student Application Program. I believe that also I read that Calgary was doing something similar at the coming School of Medicine. I think um, someone had posted about that. So please fact check me on that. But I think that Calgary is doing something similar. And so really having medical schools step up and acknowledge and be accountable for ensuring that they are, you know, appropriately representing the populations that they are serving in their medical class, that their medical curriculum is diverse and includes the needs of Black and Indigenous and and other underrepresented populations, and ensuring that it is a safe space for Black students to go and thrive and that, you know, they can find solidarity, that they won't feel unsupported. So yeah, kind of a multi multi-pronged, multi-level, and that's just only a few that I can think of off the top, but certainly there are so many ways that we can shift the current culture and shift the current dynamic. No, that's, that's great, Shiga. And I, you know, I, you've uh, inspired me to want to do more. Like I, you know, I always try and, especially near the end of the show, kind of think of a call to action, what can inspire people. And I, I think, you know, I'm always about taking, you know, put it in your hands, like, and someone like myself or any physicians of color or any marginalized population, you know, let's do these things. Let's mentor our ki- mentor the kids. Let's show them the path. Let's step up and be a voice. And, you know, I'm in some ways ashamed. I'm, you know, over 10 years in my career as a staff doc and, you know, I haven't truly taken this seriously. And, um, but there's no time like the present. And so I think I, I, I you know, in terms of call to action, I want, I, I want the, our people to all to step up. And then from an organizational level too, there's a lot of hype right now and getting people behind like these statements, but Black Lives Matters and all these, you know, I want to say, don't take this wrong way, but sometimes I worry it's just fluff. I want to see action. You know what I'm saying? Like, I want to see, I want to see you, people what are you going to implement to uh, improve the diversity in your, in your organization? Not just give me these like blanket statements. Anyone could do that. And in fact, you have incentive to do it. I want to see action. Like what next? You know what I'm saying? Uh, It's sorry, go ahead. Sorry. I was going to say to add to that, like my thoughts on this, I have a lot of thoughts on this. Like it's so important for these institutions, organizations to, 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 to not, necessarily have this performative allyship like these statements are great thank you so much for standing in solidarity but i want you to not just stand i want you to walk i want you to run i want you to do something you know i want you to take action and i think it's so important that we're also cognizant of the fact that a lot of black individuals who are doing this advocacy work are doing it and it can be extremely exhausting for them and that's kind of the minority tax that is added onto that And I've come to find both from personal experience and just anecdotal evidence that a lot of these organizations are calling on Black leaders to come do the work that they have not done. They are literally- So much, so much. And that's that's what's very frustrating to me because it's like, you know, I think it is important to bring in someone with that expertise to guide you and to- so, so that you're doing your due diligence and that you're not doing more harm than good. I do see that. But then I, I am seeing this like influx of, you know, we have not done this work. I am going to hire a Black person to do this work. And then it's like, are you just simply going to let them set up the diversity council and let them do all the work? Or are you actively looking within yourself as an individual, looking within your organization, looking within the leadership, looking within how it's directed? and seeing what 
patterns have you learned and you know what needs to be unlearned like it's so much work that goes into dismantling racist structures and actually being actively anti-racist because it's important that you are practicing anti-racism and not not racist right mm. those are those are two different dogmas so it's important that if your foundation or or if your organization your institution is actually anti-racist that means that at every level you are doing the work to learn and and unlearn those are two super important things and that you're not just bringing in a black person uh, someone who is who is active in that work to come and do the work that you don't want to do mm. and then on top of that recognizing that being actively anti-racist also means acknowledging the inherent skill set intellect and you know contributions that black people have outside of diversity and equity work you know there are black people who are experts in a number of fields and yet i feel like we are only seen as value when someone wants to bring us in to talk about diversity and inclusion it's like part of being actively anti-racist is to acknowledge and respect the contributions that black people have outside of that as well like you know we are physicians call on us for our medical expertise there are lawyers call on them for their expertise within law you know there are people who are architects who are florists like whatever may have you Word. acknowledge and respect and you know give appreciation to the contributions that black people make in a multitude of different areas outside of diversity and equity work which is super important but it's not the only thing that we're good at so you know acknowledge respect compensate us for these things as well and do it equitably <laughs> oh my god <laughs> yes this is what i'm saying i'm like i, I don't know if, like those that are listening i'm like on the edge of my seat because i'm just i'm like yes yes you're hitting on all the points yo like you're seriously here hitting on all the points i can't tell you how many like i'm getting all these opportunities that which I, maybe i should be grateful for or what have you but yeah, speak to us about diversity. Speak to us. Uh, like, I'll give you an example. Our research group in critical care, we are, we've produced, we're one of the most prolific producers of papers globally in critical care. Okay. I've been to several of these conferences. We have said, hey, you know, you guys want us to talk about costs, resource utilizations within critical care, end of life care. We got tons of papers. We were willing to help out and talk about whatever, create, a, create an agenda, whatever you want. No one rings the door. But now, do you want to come and talk to us about racism and healthcare and all this shit? I'm like, come on, yo. Like, yeah. and this is what, actually, this is why I'm excited to go. Because I'm going I'm to be like, you want me to talk about this? Look at the body of work we produce. And now you're calling. Mm. Now you're calling. Yeah. Screw this, boy. I, I mean, sorry to get a bit animated here, but it's like, this is years of pented up like sadness, anger. It's, but yeah, I, like I said, you're just nailing all the points there. And um, it's so true. But I, at the end of the day, though, I, I will say this, Shiga, like, I do think we're moving forward. I th do think there's, uh, yeah. there's some momentum that's moving in the right direction. I'm, I'm putting it on myself. I'm putting it on all of us to continue to do our part and to put on the pressure. Yeah. You know, my organization, yes, you put on some statement. You make people talk about anti-racism. What's next? What is happening next? Let's collectively put on that pressure because the rallies have stopped and they're going to die off. You're going to see less hash BLM hat hashtags. You know yeah. what I'm saying? Yeah. So let's go. Let's keep kicking it. You know yeah. what I mean? And yep. so I think this is important. So like, I'm, I'm like exhausted. <laughs> I mean, it is, it is definitely exhausting work, you know, like it is, uh, it's really hard. And if there's one thing, is there, is there one thing I could just add on to please this? Please do, please do. My experiences in the past month with regards to how I've been treated as an outspoken advocate and, you know, my story of being, uh, you know, the, the, the first black female be, to be chosen as sole valedictorian, the first, uh, you know, woman in 14 years, being the only black student in my class and then graduating as valedictorian, you know, that story served as a really positive outlet for the black community. You know, something that, you know, we can aspire towards and look forward to, especially in the midst of the pandemic. And then also 
amongst the, the, the Black Lives Matter police brutality, the things w- that we're experiencing, the protests. And so my story really got kind of got swept up in the potency of the Black Lives Matter movement. And so in the last month, I've done well over 25 media interviews, you know, where I'm talking about, you know, my experiences and what initially started off as, you know, you are the valedictorian, what was, you know, like, congratulations quickly turned into, okay, now, can you detail to me in excruciating detail, exactly what racism you um, have encountered, exactly what it felt like, and then, you know, being asked on live TV, what was it like as a Black person to watch George Floyd get, you know, get his neck stepped on for eight minutes and 46 seconds, you know, and, and having Black trauma turned into a sideshow, feeling like a caricature, you know, that my pain, my trauma from not only, you know, experiencing racism and discrimination throughout medical school, but also what it feels like to be a Black person in this time was then turned into this sensationalized, like, wow, we're going to put Black trauma, Black suffering at the forefront. And the sheer callousness that I encountered by some interviewers in the media who, you know, would spend either, even if it was a 10 minute interview, but sometimes it was an, an, an hour long interview, either for a paper, for an, an article or something. And it's like, there is just this, this disregard for the trauma that Black people face and having to be traumatized by recountering or sorry, sorry re- recounting my experiences of racism and then to just be left afterwards. And, you know, the only time I've ever been compensated was one time from a Black producer in the media. One time. I was going to talk to you about that, actually, after after this. I was like, you make sure you get paid, girl, like straight up. And it was only once. And it was for the change in in action racism special that was put on by, I'm not sure if the producer was Black, but I was contacted by a member of the production team who was Black, and I was interviewed by a Black interviewer. And that was the one time that I was appropriately compensated during that month where I was doing so many interviews. And it's like, you know, just to, to feel like my, my story was important, but then there was this underlying, like, we're going, to put, we're going to put Black suffering on display because it makes for good media. And this passive consumption, this passive consumption, you know, through watching the several videos that are put out of, you know, George Floyd and Ahmaud Arbery and just Black people getting lynched in broad daylight and people just sitting back and being like, okay, like almost this this numbing of the experience of Black suffering and then feeling that from my end when, you know, just being poked and prodded by the media and asked in excruciating detail and then left afterwards and not compensated. And nobody cares about the state that that's left me in. And just, so sorry, I'm just using this as a platform to air my grievances because I felt, and I've, I've gotten more angry as the weeks have gone on where it's like, you know, I am happy to talk about this. And I talk about this because these experiences need to be brought to light and people need to be educated, but please respect me as a human being first. I am a person. I feel. And the disregard for my feelings in the past month has left me in- incredibly upset and incredibly frustrated. So I just wanted to put that out there <laughs> for the world to know that, you know, if you're going to call on Black lived experiences, please know that the same way that you would compensate other people for their contributions in their areas of expertise is what you should be doing for Black thought leaders in this field who are stepping up and educating a lot of the time that is emotionally exhausting and mentally exhausting that, you know, compensate them and respect them. That's all I'm going to say on that. <laughs> all I'm going to say is amen. Don't, don't, let them, don't let them take advantage of you. Don't let them take advantage of you. You got a, you got a foot to step on now. You're a, you're a leader. You're a voice. Represent our people you have all the authority to ask for what you want right now. You know, I'm happy to talk about this afterwards, but don't, don't let them step. Don't let them get off the hook just because of these circumstances. Absolutely not. This is what I'm talking about. Leadership. Just want to talk about mentorship. You know what I mean? I mean, like we got to put us, there's a line in the sand with a lot of things and this is one of them. 
Certainly. Um, certainly. I just want to thank you, Chica, for this amazing interview that has left me inspired, that I know has inspired many of our youth. And I'm gonna we're gonna do our best to pump up this episode as much as we can. <laughs> Get it everywhere because you're an inspiration. And I'll still stay to that that I remember the moment. I remember the moment when I read about your article and your accomplishments and welling up and saying, I need to meet her. I need to give make sure that she knows how proud we are. And your accomplishments are incredible. I want you to realize you are one person and you're doing the work of 20. And when if you need anything at all, anything during your journey, you, you got you got me right here. You know what I mean? I'm a celly, Insta, whatever kind of, whatever you do, the kids do these days. Um, I, I want to so make much. sure that we're, you're well taken care of and where I can help out, I want to do so. You've, you've left a grown man inspired. I'll tell you that much. Thank you yeah. so much. Thank yeah. you. And thank you for having me. And thank you for giving me this platform. And thank you for letting me ramble on and on. <laughs> I really appreciate that. This has been so cathartic and healing. I, mm. I have felt like it, it, it has been a healing session for me. So thank you for that. Absolutely. Thanks so much. Thanks everybody for listening to the podcast. Tell me that wasn't awesome. Tell me that doesn't make you feel inspired and make you want to act and better our society and reach out. And I just, on the edge of my seat, I was so, I was so loved this episode. So loved interviewing Chica. So if you guys have any comments, leave them at quadcast99 at gmail.com. Follow us on Instagram, Facebook, YouTube at Quadcast. Check out our new website, solventhealthcare.ca. It is beautiful. Thanks, Kim Sutton, for setting that up. Sign up for our newsletter, show notes crew, social media crew. I love you. Thanks for all the work you do. Shout out to our crew in Brampton. That our biggest fans are in Brampton right now. I just made that up, but I don't know. I've just I'm gonna go. Th- I'm gonna go with that. And <laughs> thank you guys so much for listening. And we'll see you again next time. <laughs>